When you listen to this discussion, it will be obvious that Jeff thinks of this guest as a rock star in the world of education. In this episode of Leader Chat, we welcome the infamous Andy Hargraves. Jeff and Andy had a hard time staying to our 35-minute promise of show length, as they could have talked for hours. They discuss student engagement and social mobility, and Andy is an expert. If you're an educational leader, this will be a favorite for you. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chat. I am Jeff Rose, and today I come to you a bit giddy. That's the best way to describe this. I'll remind all of us that Leader Chat, the concept is for us to meet with authors, contact, con, content experts, as well as some of our very own uh, leaders within our community to engage them and talk about sometimes pragmatic advice, strategy on how to lead education in this day and age. And unfortunately, leaders right now are hounded in so many ways, sometimes having the capacity to do their own reading and research and so forth is limited to no fault of their own. Leader Chat is about providing them content based upon things that we know they're struggling with through our organic process um, in a way they can't get otherwise. So I said I'm giddy because today the very person that I'm going to be engaging on your behalf is um, somebody I've looked up to for quite some time. In fact, it's almost odd to say this, but it's like having an educational slash professional crush, if that makes sense, um, and an appropriate one. And so in a minute, I'm going to be introducing you to our guest. Um, I know that you are accessing this content in one of three ways. There is a, a selector group who's watching this live, we also have our members who will be watching the rerun of this video, and within a couple of weeks, this will also be posted um, for our network and beyond in a podcast form, Leader Chat with Jeff Rose. So, ladies and gentlemen, today we are going to be talking about student engagement and social mobility, and we're going to be talking with Andy Hargraves here in a moment. Now, if you don't know who Andy is and you're an educational leader, then um, I'm curious as to why. That would be interesting. Um, most, most do uh, for understandable reasons. Um, and if you don't, then you're definitely, you know, here to be introduced and in for a treat, as is everyone. So first, let me um, read his bio that I've shortened, only because um, I could go on and on. So Andy Hargraves is director of the Shenin, which stands for Change, Engagement, and Innovation in Education at the University of Ottawa in Canada, an emeritus professor at Boston College. He is the former president of the International Congress of School Effectiveness and Improvement, former advisor in education to the Premier of Ontario, and current advisor to the Minister of Scotland. He has published more than 30 books, 30 books, and has eight outstanding writing awards. He has been honored in Canada, the U.S. and U.K. for services to public education and educational research and is ranked by the U.S. Education Week amongst the scholars with the most influence on U.S. education policy debate. He is a fellow of the Royal Society of Arts. Professor Hargraves is an outstanding keynote speaker. I've heard him a number of times and workshop leader and has delivered invited addresses in more than 50 countries, 47 U.S. states, 
and all Australian and Canadian states and provinces. His most recent books are Collaborative Professionalism with Michael O'Connor, Moving, a Memoir of Education and Social Mobility, and Five Paths of Student Engagement with Dennis Shirley. So at this point in time, I would love to welcome our guest with us today, Andy. Andy. Hi, Jeff, and hello, everyone. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's really generous of you to spend time with us today. Thank you so much for being here. It's a pleasure. And I'm, I'm hoping I didn't make you blush, describe my, um, my, my professional and educational um, crush on, on, uh, on your work. You've, uh, you've made a difference for me, and I know many others. I have a good ten, so uh, if I am, you won't see it. All right, great. So um, we're going to talk about a variety of things. It's okay, but um, I want to. I want to start. There, there's two specific um, texts I, I really want to. I want to want to discuss. Number one, I want to do. want to talk about five paths, and I want to talk about student engagement a little bit. Um, and if it's okay with you, I'd love to just dive right in because this is a limited time frame, and so let's maybe skip the pleasantries and, and, and I'm just going to focus if that's all right. It's cool. Okay, so um, in, in, in this, you know, you describe kind of often our narrow view of, of, of achievement, which, which I would agree with. Um, what, what do you imagine we should think about as it relates to what achievement can or should look like in the future? Well, I think the way we've been thinking about achievement is fairly conventionally over the last at least 20 years in terms of uh, maths and literacy, perhaps perhaps a bit in STEM, in science as well, uh, usually in a way that is uh, based around content and can be easily tested. And that has driven the agenda in uh, the US and elsewhere. It's uh, work harder, put in more effort, uh, study harder, get a few emotional dispositions like grit and resilience and so on. But but it's really not questioned what, what it is we're learning, how we feel about what we're learning, how it connects to our lives. And some people can get through with grit and resilience, no matter how uninteresting the curriculum is. But if you struggle, if you are from a disadvantaged home, a minority culture, uh, a rural community that's far away from everywhere else, then it's much harder to achieve unless in some ways you're engaged with what you're learning. It means something to you and it connects with your life and your interests. There, there, there is this, there's this section of the book where you discussed kind of dimensions of student engagement. And um, maybe you could feel free to, to, to go into detail about describing that. But after you've done so, can you maybe just tell us how you think that those dimensions translate to kind of our current reality? Because what's current now is, is very different than it was just a couple of years ago. Sure, sure. Well, we're in an extremely difficult and challenging uh, time. What this time has done in many ways is put in the forefront issues that have always been there, but are now even more perilous than they were. And uh, that is, it's not really a silver lining, but, but it means we've become more deeply aware of the things that are most important in life. We know, for example, this is a time of what's called the great resignation. Many people are uh, getting divorced. Uh, many people are uh, giving up their jobs and uh, taking on new jobs, uh, becoming entrepreneurs, basically because the pandemic has brought to their attention aspects of their lives that were really not finding 
all that satisfactory, their lives or their jobs. And I think the same is true about learning. We're becoming uh, more aware of so some of the deep problems that are out there that have been there for a long time in terms of whether we're learning, how we're learning. The ASCD and uh, Gallup uh, point out that uh, around 50% of kids, particularly as if you get into a high school, are engaged and sometimes even actively disengaged with their learning. The OECD, uh, who do the PISA results that compares different countries, uh, their, their figures are a bit more conservative, but, but depending on the country, between 20 to 30 odd percent of kids uh, are disengaged and have no sense, of, no sense of belonging in school. Now, lots of us have known this for some time. The reason we've written this book, uh, Dennis Shirley and I, on engagement is not because we sat in a corner and thought, what on earth can we write about next? But because we were working with educators in the Pacific Northwest in five states who uh, were had a federal grant to improve student achievement amongst disadvantaged kids. And it was their intuitive response that the way to get to achievement was through engagement uh, with your learning, uh, with your life, and, uh, and, and with your future at the same time. So we went off and read what's there. There's a lot in the field of uh, student engagement. And it provided some help, but not enough. Most of it is how to be mindful, how to, how to uh, get involved in emotional uh, regulation, how to develop intrinsic motivation, how to create a sense of flow, that feeling you were totally lost in, in what you were learning, you lose all sense of time and the things around you. So the psychologists have a lot to say on this, but not enough. It's as if, it's as if the overall narrative was, well, kids aren't getting engaged because teachers don't know how to do it, or they're not trying hard enough. But you know, teachers don't come into teaching to turn the light bulbs off. They, they, they come into teaching to turn the light bulbs on. And, and if they stop getting their kids engaged, it's usually because they've, uh, they've lost the plot, uh, they've lost direction, uh, they've lost their mojo, or, or something else is getting in the way. And so what our book does, uh, in addition to all the psychological literature, is, is really raise some of the surrounding environmental issues that are getting in the way of uh, teachers being able to engage their kids. And we have five of these, which we call five enemies of uh, engagement. And uh, they are pretty quickly, and then we can flip them over if you like, but pretty quickly, right now in COVID and elsewhere, uh, they are disenchantment. So disenchantment is, um, is uh, you have the magic and somebody stole it from you. And uh, who stole the magic? Uh, not Freddie Mercury, but who stole, because he gave it us back, but who stole the magic was um, was basically excessive standardization and testing. And I think uh, a, a lot of the talk now about learning loss and testing kids more and making interventions and giving them extra time on uh, specific uh, basic tasks is, is in danger of stealing that magic even more. The, the second is what we call a disconnection, which is there's a curriculum out there, but it makes no sense in terms of your learning or your life. And we can't standardize that, but you know, we have African-Americans, Native Americans, we have LGBTQ uh, students, we, we have Mennonite students, Amish students, we have rural students, 
students, urban students, all kinds of students. There's no one standard curriculum that can suit all of them. So we need teachers and schools to have a lot more flexibility about how they connect that curriculum with students' lives, interests, and background. The third is disassociation, uh, which is... Uh, actually lack of belonging or wrong belonging. So uh, kids who are isolated, kids who are competitive, kids who are disconnected, kids who go to school out of their home environment, perhaps to a charter school in a totally uh, different place, are all at risk of, of uh, lack of belonging. And then algorithms uh, reinforce the wrong kinds of belonging. They reinforce not only our Amazon preferences, but also our in-group prejudices. So we need to think in part through technology about how to connect kids with other kinds of kids who are different from them have a bigger sense of belonging than just with with people like me uh, the the fourth the fourth is about disempowerment uh, which is you know t teachers don't like to be assaulted with random impositions of what they're supposed to do. And unsurprisingly, neither do kids. So if the curriculum feels like a bunch of random impositions, no matter how well meant, uh, then it's much harder for kids to engage with it. So this is why the movement for uh, student voice and uh, student empowerment is so important now. Uh, we do have warnings about not to take it too far. Not every student is a Greta Thunberg waiting to happen, uh, wanting to change the climate. A lot of them are hanging out on the beach and they're ling in, in Florida drinking too much and giving each other COVID. So their limbic systems aren't fully development. So uh, embrace student voice, but, but don't over embrace it. And last is distraction and particularly digital distraction. And uh, Jean Twenge in, has talked in a book, iGen, about once uh, kids got iPhone uh, penetration uh, to the majority of uh, teenagers, rates of student anxiety went up uh, profoundly. Americans access their phones, adults, on average 76 uh, times a day. Um, during the pandemic, uh, kids have been online, young kids have been online to a level of three or four times, at least in excess of what the American Pediatric uh, Society uh, recommends. So although there are many benefits of technology, and we talk about them in the book, and we, we have examples of them. And hey, I got in 2015, I got my university's Teaching with Excellence in Technology Awards. So I'm not against technology, but... But the revelations about Facebook now and about Google algorithms and so on are telling us we, we really need to pay attention that it's probably doing more harm than good at, at the moment. And, and it's getting in the way of kids' capacity to focus on the long-term things and the deeper things rather than on the, the short-term things and the shallower things. So in, in some ways, you're describing to me what, what I would consider almost like this uh, perfect dilemma, right, is that... There's, there, there's so many interesting challenges, and you're right, teachers did not um, sign up to teach to turn lights off. Um, and in the meantime, we still, to this day, have this narrow perspective of what achievement is. So we are still working within the confines of, of that system amidst um, some of the, the, the dilemmas, the, the, the engagement in technology that often is, is not uh, developmental or appropriate, etc. And when I read the book, and I was actually trying to describe this at home uh, to to my wife, 
and I was doing a poor job summarizing it, but I did say, you know, what, what, I, what I see here is how we create this balanced approach to engaging our students and ensuring that it's differentiated because as you described, yeah. students are yeah. very different. Um, so with that being the case, if I describe maybe the dilemma correctly, what advice would you have for educational leaders at this particular time? So, first of all, engagement, I think, should be the prime directive now, not learning loss. Um, uh, I mean, it's true that kids have lost a lot. Uh, they've lost all kinds of things, including uh, literacy, accomplishments, and so on. Uh, but, but kids have been disengaged. Uh, the, uh, hundreds of thousands, millions around the world have walked away altogether. We don't know where they are. We don't know if we'll uh, get them back. Uh, other kids never have technology. Uh, other kids switched off, turned the cameras off. Uh, I get them on Zoom presentations when, and there's nothing worse than talking to a dark vortex, I'll tell you, for the, all of you who have been experiencing that. So they've switched off, they turned off, they've uh, walked away. And uh, getting them back is is a huge challenge right now. So so the prime directive should be making kids feel good about going back to school, uh, being with the friends, developing an identity, sense of uh, belonging, uh, being, uh, be, be, being liked by their teacher, and uh, learning something new, and, and being interested in, in what they're learning something new. I mean, pretty much that's, that's what almost every parent wants what's for their child. So let's put the focus on engagement, which is the lever for learning in a broader sense. And it's also a window into well-being. So if your kid's not engaged, it's a sign of one or two things. Either there's something amiss with their instruction, or there's something adrift in their life, or both. And uh, so I'd say first thing as an administrator is... Um, don't forget about learning. Learning is important, and but but engagement is probably the the, the key thing you have to do that. Um, as you go through this, there are uh, first of all engage your staff. So so don't make your staff into martyrs or philistines or uh, hair-shirted professionals who have to sacrifice everything they've got for their kids. But you need to engage your staff too. There in whatever you're doing. The, uh, and if you have a more engaging curriculum, your staff will be more engaged. Your teachers will be more engaged. You can't engage kids with disengaged with disengaged uh, teachers. So that is absolutely critical, I think, as an administrator. Uh, and, and then there are lots of ways. We don't talk about the five paths of uh, of student engagement. It's not the definite article. There, there. We believe there are many more. Um, and one path isn't the magic one. What the path is for any child will will vary, and you need teachers individually and as communities to be connected with their children's lives and interests and know how to do that. And then, you know, quite quite specifically, uh, we have some very clear recommendations. I mean, I'll I'll give you just a couple to start off with. One is uh, take a stance on the testing. Uh, so, you know, stand up uh, individually and collectively. If you have to do it, don't make it the priority. I've worked, you'll have worked with lots of schools who said, look, if we overfocus on the testing, um, we might not even get the test results. And even if we do, there'll be a lot of collateral damage. Um, 
learning's like going to sleep. If you spend all your time at night thinking, I must go to sleep, I must go to sleep, you'll not go to sleep. But if you do all the right things, uh, exercise, you know, be in a good relationships and so on, you'll find it easier to go to sleep. Do the right things as a school about learning. And, and mainly you'll find that a lot of the testing will, will actually look after itself. So, and then on technology, um, in our center, we have a, uh, a charter for ethical uh, technology use. So great benefits of technology, also huge risk, digital addiction, for example. 30% um, of adolescent girls in the UK enhance their images of themselves online because they're dissatisfied with the existing images. So we say that every school, every district, so think about this, well, all viewers now, Every school, uh, take this seriously, every school, every district, every government, every contract with a technology provider should have clear policies and strategies to explore the benefits and to minimize and mitigate the risks. So if a technology company has no clause about what responsibility it takes for minimizing risks, we are the customers. And just like people buying organic food, uh, we say, sorry, we're not going to deal with you. We're going to deal with another company. That, that, and companies will arise that will actually address those issues over time. So but we have lots of clear strategies within the book. These are just a couple of them, but, but they're very implementable. And uh, I bet when you're teachers, you know, you get the skeptics and the boosters of technology in the same room on the same committee. And, and now it's great, which is... Every teacher practically in the universe is further ahead with technology than where they were before. So, so when they spot the risks, they're doing this from a position of knowledge now, not from a position of ignorance or, or prejudice. We'll get better conversations and better outcomes for the kids. I, I appreciate you uh, providing some uh, direction, advice, or maybe even giving permission to the concept of shifting from our focus on learning loss. I actually have some uh, strong perspectives on whether learning has actually been lost or not. Right. I think that potentially we have um, you know, ha hit some pauses along the way. Yeah. I don't think the goal should be immediate catch up. I think yeah. if we do focus on that, we will only emphasize um, what we have created. A, uh, it almost increased the problem on how we define achievement in the future. And I think that yeah. that would be a shame. Now is an opportunity. And uh, the fact is, what I hear you saying is leaders should take advantage of it mm -hmm. and switch our discussion with the public, our students, um, as well as the entities that support education to engagement as opposed to just achievement, knowing achievement will come yeah. if, in fact, we do a better job engaging students based upon where they're at as well as you know, the current environment in which we're kind of navigating. So it's, it's appreciated for an educational leader to hear, know that. And, and you know, if you are a leader watching this, uh, something to reflect on as a test for yourself and your community is, what did your kids' first day at school, back at school, look like? What, what did it look like? Um, were they sitting tests on the, on the first day? Was it all about all about safety and procedures and sanitation and, and, and masks and fear and, and anxiety? 
or uh, did you do, you know, uh, 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 the, the, there's a book club meeting tonight with us actually on our book on student engagement in Australia uh, through five sessions. And uh, we have educators there who had a carnival when the, on the first day the kids came back uh, or who had fancy, you know, teachers are such show-offs. So, you know, had, had fancy dress or something just, just really to make it the first day back feel like a joyous experience. So did it feel like a joyous experience or, or were the lawyers driving it in terms of all the protocols and the sanitation and the masks and, and everything else? So reflect back on that and think, where are you really with the whole engagement agenda? Andy, I had planned this conversation uh, focusing on five paths of student engagement. Unfortunately, or fortunately, I, I just finished uh, moving right, a, a, a memoir of education and social mobility. Um, I loved it. I, uh, I read it so quickly because I was hooked. And um, I, I want to talk a little bit about it, if possible. I, I just want um, maybe you to describe maybe your initial motivation, your why, um, what, what, what focus do you want tying it to social mobility? And maybe you need to start with mm. describing what social mobility, in fact, is. Um, but I, I found the narrative compelling, and um, it, was, um, it, it was a wonderful book. Thank you. Thank you. Well, the bizarre thing is this book is about essentially a white working class upbringing in the north of England. Um, so it's about the north of England. It's not about America. It's about white working class. It's not about it's not about diversity. And it came out in the middle of a pandemic and Black Lives Matter. So in sales terms, it is probably the worst selling book I've ever written. Uh, but the people who have read it uh, say it it's it's the best book that, that uh, as a piece of writing it's the best book i've ever written and, and I, I think the reason for that is um i first started to want to write a book like this as i describe in the book um when a few years ago when my mother was dying actually at the age of uh, 93 and dr literally drawing a last breath and and she uh, and while she was like nine days in a hospital with no water or sustenance or anything of that, she decided not not to take any more in every sense. Um, she, uh, I thought, what can I do? What can I do? Well, I could do two things. One is I could be there. Um, actually, three things. Second, I, I read aloud a book to her that I know she loved, even though I didn't know she could hear it. And, and third is... Um, I wrote about her. I started writing about her. And in just two or three days, I put it together, sent it off to the local newspaper, the equivalent of the Boston Globe or, uh, you know, whatever, the Denver Sun or whatever you have. And, um, and they wrote back and said, uh, th th this is great. Can you send some photographs? We'll do a double page spread. So I, I leaned over my mum. And uh, I said, Mom, I've got something to tell you. Um, they've, I, I've written this thing about you and in the Lancashire Telegraph, which she got delivered every day. And, um, and this is how it starts. And, it, and it, it talked about, so I read the headline and it said, how a working class mother scrimped and sacrificed for her children. 
A sacrifice is a very underrated working class virtue, by the way. And, um, and then I read the first two or three lines. And from, she'd had no water in nine days. And she'd built like a bird, basically. And then a tear, it was impossible, but a tear came down her cheek. Uh, and at that moment, I knew that not only was her life, but lives like hers worth writing about. And at first, when I wrote this, it was all over the place. I wrote about everything but the kitchen sink, in fact, including uh, the kitchen sink, about my upbringing. But as it formed, I realized it, uh, and I hope people will see this when I'm writing it, but it's not just about white working class lives in the north of England. It's, it, it's uh, and it's not a hillbilly elegy. It's not about, you know, somebody who's extraordinarily overcome adversity for an individual triumph. It's not an American dream story, uh, but it is, it, it's really a narrative about the lives that so many teachers have come from and, uh, and of so many kids that teachers teach who live lives of struggle, uh, difficulty, uh, adversity, the struggle of the millions, not the struggles of, of, of the one or two. And um, not just white working class, but uh, African-American uh, immigrants, uh, kids with disabilities, there's stuff about ADHD in there as well. Uh, LGBTQ for, for people who have had those struggles with bullying and so on. And, it, and it, it's about many kinds of people who don't look like me, but, but make sacrifices, leave a homeland, um, come up from almost nothing uh, and to try and understand what that means. And what I want this book to do is, is not to set the white working class against other forms of disadvantage, but actually, which is what I think we should be doing in this country right now in America uh, and elsewhere in the world, is, is actually bringing these together, bringing these together as a narrative uh, in politics and bringing these together in people's, in people's consciousness. So we're not divided against each other, but, but we see what we have in common and we value that struggle. And as educators, we, we support it. And engagement is a big part of it. If you come from these very different kinds of struggling lives, uh, I had wonderful engagement by a, a teacher in uh, elementary school. And, and that's why I'm here doing this today, because, because she was an inspirational teacher, had us doing projects, working in groups, um, in, in, a, in a, a very broad curriculum, did a lot of nature study, learning outside. And, uh, and I was very fortunate to have the opportunity when she was in her 80s uh, to lay the foundation stone at my old school in a new building uh, with her. So she and I are on that foundation stone together when you pull back the curtain and you can see who's, who's recognized there. And high school in a, like a boys selective school in England was, was the polar, it was the evil twin of, of everything I'd experienced in the best of elementary schools. So the book is about what it's like to live on one side of town and go to school on the other. And, and try to reconcile these totally different cultures. And, you know, that's that's a working class adolescent for me, whose dad had died, or his mother was on welfare, who was the only one going to school on the other side of town now, I had to deal with the local gangs. But it, it's also true of the immigrant kid, the African-American kid, the Native American kid. It's, it's, it's their narrative too. And we need to engage with this very deeply, I think. For years, 
whether it, uh, as I've been in leadership roles, I've often taken the time to talk with uh, those of my colleagues about my story and my why. Yeah. And my story, um, I was able to, to, to relate to what you described in that you, you said it's basically, it's, it's no Angela's ashes, which right. I thought was yeah. perfect. And, and the one point that I've made as I've described my why and my story is that um, I, I, I'm a white man who comes from actually two middle-class educated parents. And yet I had these interesting challenges and I had um, influences by my family as well as teachers, and let me describe them to you. That personal narrative is important. Yeah. And I think everyone's personal narrative is really critical, which is why this, this book really stood out to me because you so eloquently described the impact that educators and family has played in your life yeah. um, and yeah. impacted your mobility yeah. and how that also plays in other people's lives as well. Yeah. That being the case, bringing this back to your advice for leaders, as you have described your story, and maybe this isn't the, the, the best-selling book yet, but um, <laughs> it was powerful to me, and I think yeah. it'll be powerful to others. What, what advice do you have for leaders in the field right now as um, you know what they're going through? How do they maybe turn the tide specific to their personal narratives and what brings them to the work as opposed to doing nothing but navigate chaos? Everybody has a life. Um, um, it's hard to judge whose lives are better than other lives. P people have had much harder lives than I've had uh, out there. Uh, you know, mine was hard enough at times, but but people have had much harder lives. What what matters as a leader, a part of what we do as leaders is, uh, can you hear me or has the microphone gone, by the way? Are you okay? No, we hear you. Great. Keep going. But, you know, leading is teaching. Teaching is leading and leading is teaching. And uh, telling stories is what makes us human and distinguishes us from all other species. Uh, we learn through data, but we also learn through story. And actually, data without story has no value pretty much at all. Uh, so, so it's the sense we make of our lives that's important. And uh, uh, not in an Oprah Winfrey confessional sense, but, 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 but in, a, in a way that connects with the lives of others and, and makes sense to them. So if as a leader you can find a, a way of talking about your life and reflecting on it that is authentic, uh, but that is mainly directed to how it literally moves others. It, it, it moves others emotionally, and it moves others in, in terms of their progress, and it moves others morally and spiritually in, in terms of uh, wanting to work harder, wanting, wanting to do better, wanting to keep focus on the right things rather than getting distracted on the wrong things. Well, one of the things that leaders, and you know, I work with political leaders all over the globe, that they find hardest is, is actually developing that kind of narrative and, and, and sharing it with, with other people. Some presidents have done that very well in the US and some have done that far less well. So, so the, the power of story and of connection and of moving people uh, without being soppy and saccharine and uh, 
artificial really, is, uh, is one of the most neglected virtues of, of leadership. Once you've done that, then it, no, that's not enough. You have to do some specific things. And we talk about these in the book, and I'll, I'll just give you a couple to, to chew over. So, so one is, uh, if a kid comes from a struggling family, when I applied to college, uh, I regarded that as something that was getting in the way of me applying to college, not as a strength. Um, you know, I didn't, I didn't play the violin. I didn't, um, didn't even read novels much and so on. I was, I, I was spending time, you know, my mum was very sick and on welfare. My two brothers were both in factories. Um, I, I, I was spending time how to figure out how to keep her alive actually and how to, how to deal with her. And that's a strength. And, and when kids do that, you know, a lot of the kids that you're responsible for uh, spend a lot of the time looking after brothers and sisters because, you know, parents are in prison or on drugs or not there. Um, and that's a strength. And, and, and we need to find somewhere to put that when, when kids apply to college and, uh, and want to move on to the next step. So that's just like one very simple thing to, to think about. Um, Another thing to think about is internships. So I would like to make all internships illegal, illegal. And some countries have thought about this, uh, other than through an accredited educational institution. Uh, because if, if I'm the son of a lawyer, I can you know, find my mum and dad's friend or can give me an entree to Goldman Sachs, Free Labour or, you know, JP Morgan or any other high-ranking organisation. And, and then I'm in the loop. And if, uh, if I'm the daughter of a garbage collector, I'll, I'll probably find that a lot harder to do. So uh, internships should be provided through accredited institutions. Uh, they should not be free labour and uh, they should provide opportunity for everyone, no matter what background or family circumstances uh, they come from. So you might want to think about, you might want to think about that as well. These are, I mean, there are lots in the book, but these are two just very specific differences that you can make. Well, in, in some ways, the one thing that you, that you mentioned that I appreciate, that we've talked a lot uh, from a leadership perspective, is how leaders can... Um, humble themselves and actually show their own uh, humanity during difficult times sometimes elevates the conversation from yeah. the chaos and the noise to the why of the work and yeah. trying to refocus our energy on kids. And the second really also aligns to what you've said a number of times is how, how we define what's most important is how we engage students and actually focus on their strengths as opposed to, yeah. you know, the the, sometimes the, the minor issues of testing, hmm. the minor issues of, of how yeah. we assess just the content that we tend to either drive and push. So um, always, I appreciate the, 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 the interaction in some of your messages, but the consistency of what you value. And I can't tell you how, um, how excited I have been to be able to have you on this leader chat with us, Andy. It's so generous of you to spend time with us like this. It's been a pleasure, Jeff, and thanks for your leadership in this and in everything else. Well, we have a, a, a lot longer to go, but I'm, I'm honored to be able to uh, support leaders, and I wouldn't be able to do so um, without the wisdom of others. Um, mm. I am never the sage on the stage. My goal is 
to connect leaders to leaders and to provide them content that I think is um, not just valuable, but pragmatic based upon what they're going through. And this has been exactly what I would have hoped for. So once again, thank you so much, Andy. You're welcome. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, I just want to say thank you. I know you've enjoyed this as much as I, and I know there will be requests for a follow-up. Um, so um, continue to stay engaged, continue to stay focused. Everyone be well.